Welcome to Weekends with Anna Kasparian and Michael Brooks. I'm Michael Brooks. I'm Anna Kasparian. And on today's show, we have Sean Jacobs from Africa as a Country joining us, talking about the global dimension, um, the global and local dimension of the uprisings against police violence, Black Lives Matter, capitalism, and a whole bunch more. Really excited about that. If you're watching this, please make sure to hit like at the end of today's show. We'll try to take a couple of super chat questions. And of course, we have salt. We have a whole bunch of stuff to get to, as we always do. And um, go get yourself a proper subscription to Jacobin Magazine. That's how the whole thing runs. And check out the uh, teaching series, the archives. There was just a great one on Juneteenth with uh, Bill Fletcher Jr. that I just watched. It was great. Anna, how you doing? I'm doing great. Yeah. Um, one of the series that I appreciated on Jacobin was with uh, Bashkar and Adolf Reed. So good. And just so many important conversations being had, um, thought provoking, interesting. And I love that. I love that. Um, one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot this week, Michael, is, you know, Matt Taibbi wrote a pretty provocative piece. Uh, there was all sorts of infighting uh, on Twitter over it. But I think that he, while I disagree with some portions of what he wrote, um, I think he raises a lot of serious concerns that we should be aware of. Uh, the This notion of like moral cruelty, right? Which we see on Twitter a lot. And I think that you got to keep your eye on the prize and on the priorities. And that is to ensure that everyone has their basic human needs met. And unless we all work together and fight together aggressively and not get distracted by BS drama and gossip, um, I think we can accomplish those things. Um, there's just this virus that affects the, le the left that I just can't stand, and it's the infighting. Sometimes over nonsense, um, because we're always fighting for scraps on the left, right? You see it with indie journalists all the time. And I happened to call out one of them this, this week on Twitter because I couldn't help it anymore. But let's just let's just acknowledge who the real enemies are and stop with uh, the nonsense and fighting. I thought Taibbi's piece was great. I mean, I, I yeah, there was various uh, specific details which one could could agree with or disagree with, obviously, like anything else. But the basic point, I mean, I you know, again, was totally clear and totally obvious and um and the response, you know, it was one of those things where, like, the response to it validated a lot of the arguments of it. And I I think, you know, uh, Matt Chrisman has actually been super insightful on this stuff. And this is another one that I'd recommend, uh, the log off one that he did uh, with uh, Amberly Frost and Ben Fong. That was also brilliant. And uh, Ben Fong, I should shout, uh, Damage. Uh, it's a great, really, really brilliant analysis uh website um that are public publishing a lot of really insightful people and um you know that that basically the technology really built into the technology is the incentivizing of all of the cruelty gossip nonsense and drama and the kind of mm -hmm. ultimate irony of seeking the intensity of that experience as just being i mean it happens outside. It happens across all politics, but it is really specifically antithetical to the left because it's completely antithetical to a culture of either, you know, frankly, like openness, strength, forgiveness, 
change uh, and also just sort of like being like fully paid up, hopefully, a, you know, like grown up on some level. And and just, you know, the complete lack of humility, I think, too, um, is also mm-hmm. really gross because, again, I think like ironically, if it was building a culture where people could be much more open about all of our, you know, where they're relevant, most of them, you know, you know, aren't because like privacy is obviously an obvious thing, but like, you know, people's growth, people's mistakes, people's transgressions that everybody, I'm so sorry to say has done. It creates like this, this like punitive, insane madhouse atmosphere where there isn't an incentive structure to, to grow. Um, so, and I think it, it, it it cuts across all, you know, all areas. Um, and I think, you know, Taibi definitely, obviously uh identified some of it and you know i I, it was funny you know i i asked noam chomsky about it and i tried to ask him beyond that article on tmbs because i didn't want to sort of it's a big question and like so many of these things like you try to get them outside of like various silliness on twitter and get to like the real meat of things and he was just like yeah the left better have a substantive commitment in this case to free speech and the only reason this is even a question now is because it's happening not only to the left. Historically, the left has always been the one, whether it's state or private censorship, that has been primarily uh, threatened. So, you know, yeah, it's not just like a question in so many ways of like not producing all these stupid and toxic cultures. It's also really recognizing that it's just antithetical if you actually have an appetite for still, you know, trying to do the big things. Yeah, absolutely. You're so right. And I I think the most important part about it is everyone should embrace growing. And if you're involved in politics, you care about politics, if you're if you're involved in the right ways, you're going to go through a journey. Right. And that journey is uncomfortable because it involves self-reflection and it involves really analyzing whether your preconceived notions make sense or should evolve. And so it's creating a a situation where you're intimidated of or afraid of being like lambasted by having open and frank conversations where you kind of put it out on all out on the table. um, It just creates this system where you don't ever you know, go through that very important journey. You don't challenge yourself and you're just constantly living in fear of sharing what you really think. And you should have what you think challenged. Like, you know, to be honest with you, Michael, like I started watching your show because I loved what you had to say about certain people like Dave Rubin. It was funny. That's what hooked me. But you started challenging some of my views on capitalism, for instance, And it was uncomfortable. It was super uncomfortable. But I'm like, okay, am I just going to pretend like this argument doesn't exist or should I explore it? And I'm glad that I did, right? I I saw personal growth and development through that process. And sometimes you say things that maybe I don't agree with, but that's okay, right? I I trust you as a source, as someone who has um, a point of view, a worldview that's worth listening to. You know, so that's all I have to say about that. But it's just a great piece and everyone should read it. Yeah, totally. And we're all working on it across the board. And I, I just think it's very, very important to to hold uh, that 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 mindset uh, across the board. Besides that, on a completely different tip before we get to the commentaries, uh, I do want to just say 
Chronics did a cover probably about a year ago of Naughty Dread, which everybody should listen to on YouTube after they delete their Twitter app. That's one one recommendation. Also, uh, my buddy Willie Q, who's a rapper, has a great new track out, which I'm going to tweet out later. So, but honestly, like, do do other stuff. Read books. Get outside. <laughs> listen to music. Try yep. to, like have like actual conversations with real people get away from all that bullshit. And speaking of which, I actually am going to talk a little bit about a really important distinction that I think we need to make in my commentary on this week's show. So the left has absolutely correctly um, been allergic to the hashtag resistance response to Trump, right? We've seen, Everything from, you know, at its most insidious, a lot of people and, you know, culminating, obviously, in the nomination of Joe Biden, frankly, who have no appetite for any type of systems change for looking at any of the core conditions that led to the rise of Trump or Trumpism. There is endless numbers of, frankly, bipartisan consensus in terms of protecting permanent interests in Washington the national security state, the pharmaceutical industry, Wall Street, and so on. Now, of course, there's distinctions still generally. There's obviously going to be more members of the Democratic Party that will be more likely to regulate and respond to these industries. But overall, we have certainly seen a neoliberal governing consensus. And the consequences of that have led to Donald Trump. And we can't ever lose sight of that. And we also can't lose sight of the fact that the, as we always say, the endless melodrama about Trump's tweets and even at times the correct analysis of this administration's viciousness, racism, cruelty, uh, and, and frankly, just core Republican policies. Overall, as Noam Chomsky says, the Republican Party, with its climate policies alone, is the greatest threat of any singular organization to the future of the planet. And I think in many respects, he's absolutely right. But we pushed back because we noticed, and, and some people were very clear about this, particularly with critiques of, of things like Russiagate, Matt, Matt Taibbi as an example, that by sort of some of the super hyped up melodramatic rhetoric, we were uh, missing really important distinctions and sort of over-dramatizing Trump in some respects. Now, that being said, it's very important to also not lose sight of where there are serious authoritarian tendencies in the Trump administration and in the Republican Party, and also not losing sight of the fact that even as we can talk about big structural corruption, there still is distinctions inside the governing process. And Trump is absolutely taking things to a new and very serious extreme. And we need to be very, very real about that and think about it when we think about, as an example, frankly, strategic voting. And everybody knows I am absolutely 100% an advocate of voting in a way as to get Donald Trump out of office. It's actually very necessary in my view. So let's talk about a couple of things uh, that have happened uh, just recently. There is a huge conflict right now, the Southern District of New York, Donald Trump and Bill Barr. And Bill Barr is really the key conduit here. Go back and look at his whole career, going back to Iran-Contra, his work with George H.W. Bush. 
This is an authoritarian political figure. This is someone with a profound, deep, and abiding contempt for any form of, I would argue, even really limited uh, constitutional liberal democracy. There is a prosecutor named Jeffrey S. Berman, who has been uh, overseeing the Southern District of New York and has been involved in investigating multiple people around Donald Trump, including, of course, the Michael Cohen prosecution. And now reportedly he's looking into possible illegal activities and, I mean, possible, I would say highly likely, of Rudy Giuliani and Rudy Giuliani's efforts to root around Ukraine for political dirt on Joe Biden. And uh, actually, I'm sorry, uh, we should start with number uh, two first. Actually, I'll just I'll just read from this. Uh, And then we'll put up number one in a second. But let me just read this quote first. This is from uh, the New York Times. Mr. Barr abruptly announced the resignation last Friday night, late Friday night of the prosecutor Jeffrey S. Berman, United States attorney for the Southern District of New York, whose office has been at the forefront of corruption inquiries into Mr. Trump's inner circle. The office successfully prosecuted the president's former personal lawyer, Michael Cohen, who went to prison and has been investigating Mr. Trump's current personal lawyer, Rudolph W. Giuliani, but Mr. Berman then quickly issued a statement denying that he was leaving. I have not resigned and I have no intention of resignation, Mr. Berman said, adding that he had learned he was, quote unquote, stepping down from a Justice Department news release. Let's uh, put that tweet up of uh, Berman's uh, full uh, statement uh, in a tweet here um, from the Southern District. He writes, I learned from a press release from the attorney general last night that I was stepping down as United States attorney. I have not resigned. I have no intention of resigning. My position to which I was appointed by the judges of the United States District Court for the Southern District of New York. I will step down when a presidentially appointed nominee is confirmed by the Senate. Until then, our investigations will move forward without delay or interruption. I cherish every day I work with the men and women of this office to pursue justice without fear or favor and intend to ensure that this office's important cases continue unimpeded. This comes on the heels of mega scumbag John Bolton, who Anna will be talking about in a moment, revealing in his book, including, among other things, Donald Trump endorsing the detention and systemic abuse of the Uyghur population in China, uh, that he also was willing to lean on the Southern District to intervene and stop an investigation uh, involving a Turkish bank in a conversation with Turkey's leader, Tayyip Erdogan. And so this process, which again, as the attorney general, as the Southern District head says, he was confirmed uh, by a set of judges not appointed uh, by the president. There hasn't been a proper process uh, to fill his office. And he learned he was being let go of or pretending he was resigning in a press release. Now, this is very hard to not to connect with ongoing criminal investigations with Trump and tr- with a Trump associates. Then, of course, we go back to the firing of the inspector generals. And yes, Obviously, it was very easy for this to sort of get absorbed into other conversations about impeachment, which was not politically successful and and so on. But the reality is, is that inspector generals are supposed to serve an independent oversight function to oversee uh, corruption and fraud and abuse in the federal government. And clearly, Trump is getting rid of them uh, as political retribution. Now, it's his right to do so. But we need to be clear about why he's doing it. I also want to take us back to, and I'm not sure the state of this, but a terrifying move uh, at the beginning 
even before the democratic uprisings against police violence uh, and the Black Lives Matter movement and the food riots uh, as well and of the last several weeks. Um, Bill Barr's attempt to hold people in indefinite detention. I'm going to quote now from a piece in The Hill. Barr's power play for essentially open-ended suspension of criminal proceedings and related matters has nothing to do with stopping the spread of COVID-19. Barr's proposals, at least as far as we know from public reporting thus far, involve giving judges the power to suspend court proceedings whenever the district court is fully or partially closed by virtue of any natural disaster, civil disobedience, or any other emergency situation. The only reason to suspend court proceedings would be if no judge or court orders or other personnel were available to deal with these cases. That's not the case. And now it is highly unlikely to ever be the case. Uh, this was a piece uh, from a fellow at the Cato Institute uh, written at the time that Barr was was proposing. That's Patrick Eddington uh, from the Cato Institute. In the last several weeks, of course, with the protests, we saw Donald Trump order the gassing of nonviolent protesters, the tear gassing of them, so we could have a photo op, advocacy of martial law moves by Senator Tom Cotton, and other ongoing threats from the White House and the Attorney General. So even as we can absolutely and also even understand contextually that the overall erosion of civil liberties in our time has been a bipartisan project, one of many examples, Bill Clinton signing the Effectiveness and Death Penalty Act in the 1990s and the bipartisan consensus on the absolutely dangerous Patriot Act uh, that has damaged our civil liberties and privacy so fundamentally. That being said, it is very clear that between Trump and Barr, there is a, a massive, there is a expansive view of the power of the unitary executive, which is going to be used by absolutely a uniquely corrupt and grotesque and capricious head of state. People should be real about it and factor it in when they think about this election. Yeah, I love I love the the last point especially because you know for Democrats under a Democratic administration when we see the erosion of civil liberties even if it's um, that erosion isn't being exploited uh, as much as it could be we need to think about these Democrats need to think about. The fact that a Republican can come into office, uh, someone who's uh, far more authoritarian, someone like Donald Trump can come into office. But I also want to just raise the issue of Congress also giving up its own power in order to embolden and empower the executive branch, because we already know what Bill Barr's uh, ideology is. We already know that he doesn't believe in a system of checks and balances. He doesn't believe in how our system of government is set up in the first place. And so when you hear stories about Nancy Pelosi striking a deal with Steve Mnuchin over trillions of dollars in stimulus money, you have to consider the fact that that legislation is written in a way that essentially allows Steve Mnuchin to use that money with absolutely no oversight, with absolutely no transparency, and it gives the executive branch power, unchecked power, right? So we need to hold Democratic members of Congress accountable as well when they just willy-nilly hand over power uh, to the executive branch and go against our entire system of government, which is supposed to have checks and balances. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, um, we're, we're just so 
like we're synced up because, uh, you know, my topic is related. I wanted to, you know, do a deeper dive on this show in regard to John Bolton's upcoming book, because there's definitely a lot of uh, celebration among Democrats regarding Bolton's book and some of the revelations in the book. Of course, he wrote about Donald Trump and his experience within Trump's administration, But keep in mind that most of the revelations that we've learned about so far, we already either suspected or knew about in different contexts. So let me tell you why I think this is important to discuss. So while people are celebrating John Bolton's upcoming book, it hasn't been published yet, but we've seen excerpts from it in various legacy media outlets. I do want to remind everyone that while he's attacking someone as disgraceful and as terrible, evil, cruel as Donald Trump, it doesn't change the fact that Bolton himself is pretty bad in every single way that you can accuse Trump of. So uh, he is being celebrated because people are like looking at him or seeing him as some sort of whistleblower, right? But keep in mind that he is publishing this book with a profit motive in mind. He had an opportunity to testify against Donald Trump during the impeachment investigation. He refused to do so. He claimed that he didn't want to do so until the courts got involved and forced him to. But really, he was looking forward to publishing this book, you know, making a quick buck. And I highly recommend that everyone avoid, you know, giving into that or purchasing it or spending any money on it. But I also want to just point out that John Bolton is awful in every way that he accuses Donald Trump of being awful. And the reason why I say that is because while Bolton might seem a little more sophisticated or a little smarter, um, if you really look at his actions, he's no different than Trump in what he would do if he had unchecked power. So um, let's start off with the fact that he calls Donald Trump stupid. I mean, he implies it. There's no question about it. But in reality, John Bolton himself is pretty stupid. And I think there's no better example than this uh, back and forth that he had on Tucker Carlson's show back in 2018. It has to do with the war in Iraq, a war that should not have happened, a war that, of course, turned out to be a complete and utter disaster. But John Bolton still refuses to admit that it was a huge mistake. So you've so you call for regime change in Iraq, Libya, Iran, and Syria. In the first two countries, we've had regime change, and obviously it's been, I'd say, a disaster. I think we no, agree. No, I, I don't agree with that. And, and let me, let me, you don't think it's been a disaster? No, because to argue that, you have to argue, let's just take Iraq to begin with, you have to argue that everything that followed from the fall of Saddam Hussein followed inevitably solely and unalterably from the decision to overthrow him. And that's simply not I, I would never argue that. I'm, you, I'm merely arguing the you, macro you have picture to. since you... Well, you, you just said that Iran is the single greatest threat to us and to that region. I think you'll concede that Saddam was the greatest counterbalance to Iran, and they were empowered by his, by his fall. So... I think it's fair to say if you think Iran is the real threat that way, you know, it's kind of hard to defend that decision, I, right? No, because I think your analysis is simple-minded, frankly. Okay. The Iranian threat, which stems from the revolution of 1979, uh, was underway quite apart from what Saddam Hussein was doing. The Iranians have been trying to get nuclear weapons for 25 Wait, years. So you don't think the Saddam fall of Saddam Hussein's, made Iran stronger? I think it made uh, it, the the fall of Saddam, no, did not make Iran stronger. What made Iran stronger ultimately was the withdrawal of American forces 
uh, in 2011. So if you, I mean, I, I'm not saying you're the only person who thinks that. You're the only person I have met who thinks that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, look, he he's the only person who thinks that because he's a moron, right? A Bolton is arguing that the only mistake that the United States made in invading Iraq was not remaining in Iraq even longer. So pulling troops out is what destabilized the region. But what Tucker Carlson is saying there is actually pretty right. We further destabilized the region because war hawks like John Bolton, with his profit motive in mind, have never met a war that they didn't love, have never seen a situation where they didn't want to invade a country and further destabilize a region. The fact that he's like one of the few people who still denies that that invasion was a complete and utter disaster gives you a sense of just how utterly stupid he is. But the difference between him and Trump is that Trump speaks like a fourth grader. So it's obvious to anyone, even if you're not following politics, that he's a moron. But John Bolton is no smarter. And John Bolton is certainly not any less of a racist. For instance, back in uh, 2008, when Obama was just about to get elected, this is on election night, here is the simple-minded and stupid, evil thinking uh, of John Bolton. Take a look. Since, since we are about to elect the first African-American as president, it is a very significant historical fact. And I take it, therefore, around the world, criticism of the United would. States for being a racist nation will now stop, right? Oops. So obviously we're in the middle of a massive movement calling out uh, racist policing in this country. We all know that racism continues to be a huge systemic problem in the United States. And John Bolton has repeatedly denied that and has turned a blind eye to the insane cruelty of the Trump administration at the border. The fact that dozens of uh, immigrants who are seeking asylum have died in those border cages. John Bolton had no problem with that. John Bolton willy-nilly worked for the Trump administration uh, because, A, of course, he wants power, but more importantly, because he didn't have a problem with any of the cruelty that was implemented by the Trump administration. He's also uh, just as dangerous as we know. Uh, John Bolton has advocated with war with pretty much every country. He wants to invade Iran. He wants to invade North Korea. He's a complete and utter disaster when it comes to those issues, of course. Uh, but just like any other war hawk, he is unwilling to put his own life on the line in order to fight in those wars. One of his, uh, one of his comments in a Yale reunion book said the following, I confess I had no desire to die in a Southeast Asian rice paddy. I considered the war in Vietnam, which he was very supportive of. I considered the war in Vietnam already lost, right? So he's just like Trump in uh, being a, a draft dodger. And he has no problem putting other people's lives on the line in order to... Uh, invade other countries and to pursue uh, the imperialism that the United States is so well known for. He's also dangerous in that he doesn't believe in democracy. He doesn't believe that he should have to go through any elections, uh, any type of, of process of democracy in order to have a position of power. Uh, one of his uh, classmates told the Yale Daily News, quote, Bolton aspired to be the highest ranking non-elected official in the government. And by the way, here's a little more of his Trump-like lo love affair with uh, putting others in danger for profit. 
Another goal of his, apparently, was to verbally abuse his colleagues. One employee said he tried to force her to lobby for less regulations on baby formula in developing nations. She refused, citing studies that formula is dangerous in developing nations because of lack of access to clean water. The employee alleges Bolton shouted that Nestle, a maker of formula, was an important company, and then screamed that she was fired. So that's who John Bolton is, and uh, he is well known for being pretty vicious to people who work for him. Um, and this is my favorite part about John Bolton, my favorite thing about John Bolton. John Bolton is, of course, like pretty much any other politician, Democrat or Republican, a hypocrite. But the hypocrisy is particularly delicious right now as he's facing a lawsuit from the Department of Justice, which, of course, is attempting to block the publishing of his book. Now, it's already too late. The book will be published and we've already seen excerpts from it. Uh, but I bring this up because if the lawsuit is successful, John Bolton will not be able to keep the proceeds from his book. The Trump administration will be able to garnish them. And I think that's pretty hilarious. Bolton cried about it, has been whining about it, and is arguing that he's being censored, that he has important information to share with the American people and that the government is trying to censor him. Which uh, is interesting, especially because the Trump administration is citing classified information in its quest to block the publishing of this book, right? Well, John Bolton in the past had very strong opinions on whistleblowers, on censorship, and didn't really seem to agree with the John Bolton of today when it came to whistleblowers um, like Chelsea Manning, for instance. What do you think of Bradley Manning? I think he committed treason. I think he should be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. What does that mean? Well, treason is the only crime defined by our Constitution. And it says uh, treason shall consist only of levying war against the United States or in adhering to their enemies, giving them aid and comfort. And he gave our enemies a lot of aid and comfort. So what should happen to him? Well, he should be prosecuted. And if he's found guilty, he should be punished to the fullest extent possible. And what is that? Death. You think he should be killed? Yes. So he thinks that, you know, uh, Chelsea Manning should have been killed for disclosing government secrets. Uh, the same thing that John Bolton is being accused of right now by the Department of Justice. Uh, Bolton also had very strong opinions on what should happen to Edward Snowden, who informed all of us that we were being spied on indiscriminately uh, by the Obama administration. And so what did he have to say about Snowden? Take a look. I mean, my view is that Snowden committed treason. He ought to be convicted of that. And then he ought to swing from a tall oak tree. So does Bolton think that he should also swing from a tall oak tree? Because um, according to the Washington Post, Trump, who called Bol Bolton a traitor and, had, and was incensed uh, that he walked out of the White House with copious notes, has told allies he'd like to see Bolton be charged, according to people familiar with his remarks. Donald Trump even said, quote, I will consider every conversation with me as president highly classified. And then, by the way, the Justice Department argues disclosure of the manuscript will damage the national security of the United States. The same kind of ridiculous argument that Bolton was on board for when it came to Manning and Snowden, by the way. 
To be clear, defendant's manuscript still contains classified information as confirmed by some of the government's most senior national security and intelligence officials. So there's a huge problem with how information is classified by the government. Obviously, information that should not be classified is classified all the time in order to uh, avoid any and all transparency. I, I disagree with the way that happens. It doesn't matter if it's done uh, by Democrats or Republicans. I think that the American people deserve to know what we learned through whistleblowers. But I just find it hilarious that John Bolton wanted to see whistleblowers hanging from oak trees, while at the same time, when it comes to his own profit motive, he wants to fight back against government censorship. He's trash. Do not launder his image. Do not fall for it and do not celebrate him, period. Each wave of these people that get embraced by, you know, MSNBC or the Democratic establishment, I, it's just, it just gets more disgusting, you know, with each step. I mean, for what it's worth, I, I like, I ended up having so much more sympathy for Michael Cohen than almost like any of the rest of them. Like Michael Cohen, I liked, he was just sort of like, hey, like, I thought we were just doing like borough scams. Like, I don't think you should actually like be a white supremacist president. Uh, but I think, you know, just the idea of him talking about Chelsea Manning and Edward Snowden, who risked everything. Edward Snowden's in exile. Chelsea Manning was jailed and tortured for exposing, I mean, extensive and systemic government wrongdoing. He wants them murdered. He's inciting against them. And now his, you know, basically just like his gossip book, is, uh, you know, sacrosanct. And by the way, it is. I mean, look, of course. I mean, you know, the idea of the Trump administration trying to block publication. Thank God they're being ruled against. Obviously, it's a huge threat to civil liberties. And of course, we support the publication of the book. But his, you know, his sense of, uh, you know, his willing to condemn people for actual exposure to death and then just his kind of like gossip score settling trash. I mean, it's, you know, and and honestly, there's some excerpts in the book where, I mean, I mean, John Bolton is such a threat to all living things that like Donald Trump, you're like, oh, well, thank God Donald Trump was there because he was the reason we didn't escalate on Iran or, you know, mm-hmm. Jesus Christ, shut up. Let him talk to North Korea. I mean, you know, John, John Bolton... <laughs> even down to the the Nestle baby formula. I mean, just a very, very uniquely grotesque human. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, and it it is kind of interesting to like do an honest analysis of the pros and cons. Uh, Actually, there were a lot of cons with Bolton and Trump's administration. I remember when Trump was clowning on his mustache And I was relieved. I'm like, thank God Bolton has that mustache who Donald Trump, who only wants to hire people out of central casting, finds ugly enough to not want to hire him. Right. But then eventually after like his 28th national security advisor is like, I don't know, like, uh, how about this like thin, thinner Wilford Brimley guy? Let's bring him in. Right. Like it's it's just incredible. But I'm glad that they didn't get along. And I'm glad that Trump wasn't influenced by Bolton pushing him for more war with Iran, with North Korea. I mean, it would have been a complete and utter disaster. And I mean, we've already uh, seen the negative impact of Trump ripping up that Iran nuclear deal, but it could have gotten much worse with Bolton still in that administration. Absolutely. 
So I guess we'll take a brief break and we're going to come back. This is going to be a great conversation with Sean Jacobs. He's the uh, one of the uh, I think he is the founder of Africa as a Country, which is a fascinating website. People should be reading. They also have uh, their own YouTube channel. So I'd recommend, you know, after you watch this, you go over and subscribe. We'll be back in a couple of minutes. up everyone welcome to weekends with anna and michael joining us now is sean jacobs he's an associate professor of international affairs at the new school and founder and editor of africa is a country sean thank you so much for joining us i should call you professor jacobs actually uh, so sean is okay all right so i'm so happy that you're here with us i have so many questions to ask you um, especially with the Black Lives Matter movement that's happening here in the United States, but also globally, we're seeing protests in, in response to policing in various countries. And I think that's that's important. Um, so I just wanted to talk a little bit first about why you think the Black Lives Matter protests uh, spread across the world. I mean, I think firstly, so I'm thinking particularly from the perspective of, you know, someone who's from like Africa or specifically South Africa, I think we underestimate the the, the power of U.S. cultural politics. Um, so, you know, what, this, this is sort of common sense, right? The influence of Hollywood, the ubiquity of American media, that large parts of the world sort of, even if they know that there's a particularity to American politics around race, they sort of... It's it's a it's both a kind of aspirational politics and something they can identify because of movies because of television, so that's one thing. I also think that a, a lot of American radical politics, particularly African American politics, have always been you know Malcolm X. I mean, you know, I, I actually think Malcolm X way more than Martin Luther King because of his appeals to like the UN or the kind of politics that went with that. And then I think the internet is obviously like the big thing, which is, and there's a piece on our website. Um, by Will Shokey, who's a young South African writer, lives in Johannesburg, um, that writes about, like, why, you know, one is, as I said, this idea that, like, we all are watching kind of America. Secondly, there's there's definitely the impact of social media, that people look at social media. And I think it's also fascinating that normally 
because America's, well, the United States, because, you know, it's a continent and then a country, the U.S. is seen as often exceptional. A lot of people never really thought of the U.S. as something that they could look to and identify for, for I would say, radical politics or more progressive politics. Um, but in this instance, it felt like the U.S. was the place in which people sort of finally took on the police. So, yeah, there's this, there's similar kind of problems around the police in the average African country. Uh, there's a statistics like in Kenya, the police murdered uh, something like 144 people last year. It's only June and they've murdered already something like nearly 95 people. So they're on course to break that record for the year. So some of the same issues happen in these different countries. They they manifest differently. So in Kenya, the police is black. The police is not white in South Africa. The police commissioner is black. Most of the, the police force are black. But some of the same methods are being employed. And these are, they're for various reasons, they inherited from colonialism. But I think more pointedly, some of the methods that all these police use, they get training from the Americans. And so I think people began to see these connections. They began to identify it. And I think also one other quick point is the presence of various diasporas, particularly in Europe, uh, in Britain, people of African descent, people from the Caribbean, collectively as black Britons in France, where there's like a long struggle by people without papers, uh, where there's like systematic racism by the police against people who live in like, you know, lower income neighborhoods on the outskirts of like the big cities. So I think this moment just presented an opportunity for people with various different grievances. And that meant it manifested itself, you know, differently. One other quick example. In some countries, it wasn't necessarily police brutality, but it was about public monuments. You see, you know, in Belgium, it was about getting rid of like monuments dedicated to King Leopold II, who was responsible for what essentially amounted to a genocide in the old Congo. Uh, in Britain, like they threw like statues of people associated with with slavery. So some, so it was just because of that connection between mass media, the internet, I would say, this kind of relationship that people have with American popular culture. And especially, it's often radical culture or culture dressed up as radical. It, it just, it resonates um, around the world, yeah. Yeah, Sean, I want to follow up on that with uh, maybe the, you know, very good potential of the dynamic you're outlining and maybe some of the downside of it. And so so one thing, and, and Alex Huckley has a piece in Damage where he sort of does a very interesting critique of this as basically American soft power uh, getting exported globally. And I think, I mean, I think in some ways he really overstates it, but he has some kind of interesting examples of, you know, places where say like Roma are abused by police uh, and that isn't discussed, but then like the exact replication of language um, in a situation that, you know, applies to Chicago or New York um, is sort of, you know, imported and replicated. And then, you know, another example, an unfortunate example would be, uh, you know, like this, this kind of, and now it's sort of everybody's on the bandwagon of trashing this book. So I'll do it a lot less, but this kind of, you know, this white fragility stuff. Now we've got to translate these terms from just sort of like, you know, kind of corporate training seminars into Europe and so on. Now, that might be the the sort of downside of of this kind of export of a certain type of neoliberal kind of identitarian sort of thing. Um, Now, on the other hand, what I'm actually curious about, if these do become properly global, 
um, in the in the really inspiring way they are. Um, at, there, there are global uprisings against racism, against white supremacy, against police violence, and all of the issues that those sink into. And I'm and I'm actually thinking of a piece that William uh, Shockey wrote for your site about uh, called the class character of police violence, where he sort of talks about the post-liberation policing in South Africa. And what struck me was that, and and again, I guess, one, the paradox of, of leaders like Cyril Ramaphosa, who has his own direct relationship, you know, in the Marikana massacre, which maybe you could talk about, uh, using this to sort of burnish domestic credentials. But then on the other hand, what if this did become properly globally reciprocal, that Americans could start reading Williams' piece could start, you know, contextualizing in a way that we really do see the global dimension and, you know, therefore the capitalist dimension of this. Right. So, so I think there's like three parts to yes. there's there's a- three places that I could maybe say something useful. One is, I think, about how reciprocal is this relationship between what's happening in the U.S. and are Americans taking on ideas from other parts of the world? I think the other one is about the class character. The first is, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sort of answer you, the first part of your question by I actually think that um, let me let me say occupy. If we if we take it back a little bit, so in most of these African states, South Africa is probably unique because it's kind of the last sort of left wing uh, or movement that is broadly left wing that gains political power. It gets into power, but then it slides back into kind of you know a sort of globally accepted neoliberal model. Now the, we could debate the various reasons for it as to why it does that. It might have to do with local conditions because it's trying to placate and make sure that whites, right, take a buy-in into this new order. So Nelson Mandela's kind of posture is mostly that of reconciliation. The other is that like the world conditions at this at this at that point forces them to to take a neoliberal model. Like Mandela goes to Davos, they tell him he's like, I'm gonna nationalize stuff. They tell him you can't do it. So in a, in, in a lot of these places, they become sort of straitjacketed by like a global consensus. And, but the effects for the people who live there is mostly negative, right? It's, it's unemployment, it's underemployment, um, it's lack of investment in social services. And when it comes to the police, it's basically the same like the police elsewhere. But if, 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 you know, much of what I know is what's happening on the African continent. I think Occupy is like the first moment in which people there, and, and, and I, this is why I think the, uh, uh, when, when you sort of say like how much of what we see in America is, is what, what is it that, that we can see in America and can we replicate it? Is it helpful to us or whatever? So if you are living in some other part of the world and there is this movement that begins in the United States that explicitly identifies the problem of one of the failures of capitalism, in very crude ways, the 1% against the rest. But people can, like, catch up to that. So you saw, you saw similar kinds of movements in African countries. In Nigeria, I think in 2011 or 2012, there's something called Occupy Nigeria. It's about a very specific thing, which is that the state guarantees people a, a um, what they call, like, a, 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 people who call it gap, but, you know, like a subsidy. And the government is corrupt. People don't see anything from the state, but they sort of, they want that subsidy, that oil subsidy. Um, and so they form a movement called Occupy Nigeria. And you see similar kind of movements develop in South Africa. I think it's still mostly around what they call service delivery, like um, uh, free water, free water up to a point, not to privatize electricity, uh, evictions. So that's the kind of politics. So I think it was sort of just like that for a while. What we forget is like 
Bernie Sanders has like a, I mean, just from what my sense was, the the he invigorated like the American left. He was probably not going to win. I saw Adolf said the other day he wasn't probably going to win the election, but he invigorated like the left here. Um, and they and I think somebody else said like we won the argument, but we didn't win. You know, we didn't have the numbers. So I think some of the ideas that Bernie made here, if you go back, there's an old article that I wrote on the site, which is that you saw um, African immigrants in Britain. Um, saying like the things that Bernie Sanders identified are the things that we identified. There was something called Africans for Bernie. Uh, they were in South Africa, in, in African countries. Um, people wondered whether or not they could get a Bernie Sanders, like a leader like Bernie Sanders. So they weren't like necessarily, yes, he's like an old white man, but that wasn't the thing that they connected to. It right. was what his ideas were. So there's, an, there, there's some, because of this way that American ideas spread, but in this case, I think it's like now it's like a particular set of American ideas. Ocasio-Cortez is also a kind of uh, a version of it. I also think Ilan Omar is the most exciting African politician there is right now in the way that she identifies what is wrong with American imperialism. You don't hear this kind of thing from the average African politician or that they would do these kind of things when they, when they have power and they can use it to change policy. So... When I say like this, I mean, if I sort of have to be more specific about what I said first, it's that what I think is interesting that's coming out of the U.S., that kind of energy. And one last point is just on this one. I think Black Lives Matter this time around is a very different movement. I think people underestimate that this is not the Black, Black Lives Matter of 2013. The Black Lives Matter of 2013 was, you know, anger. I think it then became, it, it then became you know, very much about black politics, black identity politics, black power politics. This is something else. I mean, like, you know, I live in New York City, I live in Brooklyn. This is a multiracial coalition. It's multi-generational. Uh, it, 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 I don't think it's maybe not yet. It's not captured because, you know, we're, we're in like the standoff. So it, uh, it's, it's in motion. So I'm also probably projecting onto it. But I don't think it's been captured by any sort of NGO politics or, you know, there's good foundations and there's bad foundations, but what people use it for it's like foundation politics. It's very much like it's it's open-ended, it's very, very radical, it can go everywhere. And interestingly, it also uh has popularized a whole bunch of ideas that we didn't think were like regular, say like a month ago. Defund the police. And maybe it could also it could also be like the thing that extends that argument, that takes it somewhere else, right? That people extend it to like uh social services, etc. and so on. On the second thing about the class character, just quickly, the class character of politics um, in South Africa, in places like South Africa. So in, in places like South Africa, it happens that the police inherited many of the methods from apartheid. And what black South Africans who are middle class don't often like make a connection is that the police are obviously not often attacking them, but it's going for working class people in South Africa. On the reciprocal question quickly, because I know I'm sort of droning on, on the reciprocal question, I think there, the point is like, I'm not so optimistic that Americans are learning a lot from other places. I was talking to someone the other day about some of the movements, just from my experience in South Africa. I, I think it would be fascinating for Americans to go look back at, at say, like something like the United Democratic Front, which was a very populist movement in the, in the 1980s that happened in South Africa after the 1970s, which was very explicit, like black consciousness politics. And out of that, something else had to come, which was like cross-class, cross-racial, uh, cross-racial. 
And it will be interesting for me if Americans go look at the example of, you know, what people did with, with uh, Black Lives Matter. Also, sorry, with, with, with the United Democratic uh, Front in South Africa. Um, so, you know, there's, 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 I, I, I'm not, I'm not confident that, that people in the U.S., uh, uh, maybe not people on this program, but, you know, can see those connections and go like, hey, there's something we can learn from other places. Aside from maybe, oh, this is how you protect yourself. Hong Kong said you, people used umbrellas. But I think at a more substantive level, like in terms of like ideas about how to think about um, the United States as an imperial power, how to think about your place in it, how to think about public policy. No, I'm a little bit more pessimistic about that. So it's interesting. I'm I'm overall a very pessimistic person. Um, but one thing that I've noticed uh, when it comes to some of the younger individuals who are involved in this movement in the United States is they absolutely are bringing up the issues uh, related to U.S. imperialism, which gives me a little bit of optimism. So, uh, for instance, I'm hearing a lot more about uh, the egregious nature of uh, U.S., uh, the United States orchestrating coups in Latin American countries. Um, and, and I love that because I think that that consciousness uh, not only needs to exist, uh, that type of American culture needs to change. And, you know, in a recent interview, you said Americans rarely care what the rest of the world thinks about them. And I see that culture. I mean, it's in its infancy right now with young uh, people in particular. Um, but I am starting to see a little bit of a shift there. And I think it's important to, um, you know, emphasize the role of independent media in the United States and in kind of uh, pushing that change in culture. I also want to learn lessons about what happened in the aftermath of, um, you know, ending the apartheid in South Africa, because you raised some really interesting, um, uh, you know, situations that I think most people don't talk about. They don't think about. You mentioned in the same interview that I referenced earlier that uh, change didn't happen overnight. Even as the apartheid ended, uh, there were some negative outcomes, including um, people who were exiled, uh, people who were uh, persecuted, prosecuted. Can you talk about that a little bit and, and talk about what uh, people in America can learn from that? So I think a lot of these debates were also actually happening here. I've, I noticed some of this during the B Bernie, um, when Bernie was sort of kind of, you know, in ascendance and it wasn't clear that he was not going to be the candidate. You heard some of these things, which was if, if an, let's say Bernie Sanders did become the president, then in order for him to fulfill his agenda, you still needed like a mass movement. So one of the problems of post-apartheid South Africa was that one of the first things that the ANC whether it was willful or whether they thought it would assist them in governing better, is that they demobilized like the mass movements in South Africa. So South Africa uh, quickly, uh, you know, that, that moment that I referred to as the United Democratic Front, that was the first mass movement in South Africa's politics since the 1950s, like a multi-class, multi-racial movement with a clear, a radical set of ideas about how they wanted to transform South Africa. So the first thing what, that the ANC did tell them was to like uh, uh, disband and fall and become part of ANC structures. The ANC had operated in exile, you know, like a like a political, like a very kind of uh, close political party. It had certain kinds of methods that it inherited from its associations with sort of Stalinism with the Soviet Union. So that was one problem that that they sort of got sucked into the ANC. I think um, the second thing I think was while it seemed like a good idea at the time because you wanted to build consensus around a certain national agenda. The ANC made an alliance with uh, 
the trade union movement um, and the Communist Party, uh, you know, the Communist Party very sort of influential with ideas and the trade union movement bringing the masses. The problem there again was that that meant that the trade union didn't, the trade union movement, the federation, because the biggest one is called Kusatu, didn't have that same kind of clout that it had when it was a popular movement kind of alongside um, and in, in tandem, but in a sort of critical relationship with the ANC. Now it was part of the governing coalition. Many of its leaders went into the state. And this one other quick example, um, the last one was around particular economic policy. So in the early, in, the, in that, that period, right after the end of apartheid, the ANC brought along a lot of progressive economists, South African, from elsewhere to come to South Africa and talk about those lessons that, you know, the wrong turns, the false starts, and maybe we could do um, uh, something different. And apart from that comment, the sort of comment I made about Mandela going to Davos, there was also the way in which the ANC, for some strange reason, when it had like mass support, and obviously it, it could still, it could maybe pull up a, a bunch of reforms, like radical reforms in the economy. But instead, it, it went a very simple route. It got rid of those people, and it started appointing a sort of more like orthodox, more sort of mainstream group of people uh, to advise them. And with like in two years, it abandoned, it's like it had a really good program called the Reconstruction and Development Program. And it abandoned that for a more neoliberal program. So, you know, there's, there's something there about, um, one, the, 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 the masses of South Africa, if you want all the popular movements, trusted the ANC to bring, to implement the model to change South Africa. And so I think one problem that you can get here is like, yes, the energy currently is very, you know, it's, it's incredible to watch the energy on the street. I mean, it's, it's also difficult to sort of like figure out, as I said to somebody earlier today, it's like a, it's like a party or like a protest on like an endless loop. But so you don't know where it could go. Um, so at some point people are going to have to like say, okay, so what do we mean by the fund of police? Like, you know, how would that work? And then we implement it. But then there has to be a mass movement in the street that like constantly pushes and cajoles like the state or the people who, who, who represent, you know, represent you in these formal institutions, Congress, state legislatures, city councils to make sure that those things happen. And I think that that's, that's one problem that happened in South Africa. The, the streets withdrew from politics. Of course, they made a comeback in the early 2000s with all the protests around electricity and water and AIDS and so on. But I think by then they had been significantly weakened. So now in South Africa, you have those same kind of movements, the inheritors of the 1980s, the inheritors of the early 90s, but they just don't have the same power. And the ANC, because now it's a very disciplined political party, it's all about political power, it can avoid them. You know, it doesn't have to listen to them. And whereas before they could have the ear of the ANC, now they have to take the ANC to court constantly. And if they win the case, the ANC doesn't even, the ANC as a government does not implement, you know, doesn't implement, implement these things which are people's rights. So, okay, so that's the situation in, in South Africa. And I'm, I guess I'm wondering, because I think one of the things that's also happening now that is really important about these these movements, particularly we talk about them globally, is that this sort of, there was a wave that I guess you could argue started with Syriza and going through Bernie that has kind of ended, where there was this sense that maybe a genuine, let's just say, social democratic agenda had an electoral track. And it's been, you know, destroyed in Greece, uh, repelled in the UK, uh, and in the United States, in coalition in Spain. So I guess there is that. Um, in, do you think that there's a potential 
even though it's, you know, the ANC is very hegemonic and there's a lot of difficulty ahead, is there the potential for a new wave in, in African countries from an electoral perspective as people sort of burn out on, you know, formation, like legacy formations like the ANC, one of the most important movements in history, but now is governed for decades. So the, firstly, let me give you the South African example, and then I'll say quickly about two or three other examples. I think in South Africa, the moment that presented itself as something that could be different was the, 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 what happened on campuses in South Africa between 2015 and 2017. There was this massive student, uh, national student movement you, you know, hashtag, used hashtags, roads must fall, which was a reference to a, a colonial figure statue. And he, he was a stand-in for kind of the, you know, this, this sort of symbolic presence. It's like when people are now throwing statues into this into the into the harbor, or I think today they took down a statue in D.C., and I think there's one also in Georgia that's going to go down. So that was the one part of it, very symbolic, struggle about representation. Linked to it was another struggle called Fees, Fees Must Fall, which had to do with... Um, free public higher education. And then that movement was sort of allied with the trade union movement, but not nationally, just on campuses around the conditions of the workers who provide services in dorms, you know, uh, in cafeterias. And this was called out, the outsourcing movement because the universities were outsourcing the work because they didn't want to deal with unions. They wanted to deal with labor brokers. So that movement, and crucially, actually, this is important about this movement. They question like the consensus around the ANC's uh, right to govern, or that the, the, you know, the, the black South Africans, which is the majority of the people, had voted for the ANC and, and had somehow felt you know, the ANC wasn't delivering to them, but nobody had done anything about it. And so the students explicitly questioned like, the wisdom of the 1994 political deal. So something here was something that was saying, what would politics look like after nationalism? Like, so that would you call the legacy formation. So they brought us to power. Now what comes next? What's fascinating about that movement was they, I mean, for various reasons and everybody has their theories, but after 2017, they just sort of fell apart. They kind of uh, internal contradictions, uh, pure, you know, politics of purity, like right. identity politics. Um, also, you know, it's a, it's a generational thing. People graduate. Um, and so I would have, which is, which is kind of why I sort of always talk about what, what I think is interesting about this BLM moment. It will be interesting to say, where does this popular energy that's in the street, like, where does it go? What will it, will it go back into its silos? Will it degenerate into identity, you know, what we might call identity politics, or could this be like something that could build bigger? So that's, that's, I think what happened in South Africa and linked to that, I think was the inability of like the. Uh, historically, the movements that we associate with the left in South Africa, I think they just didn't know what to do with the students because they were kind of uncomfortable with identity politics, um, even though it was necessary at the time. I think they just couldn't make sense of it rather than sort of like, oh, this is a moment. It presents political possibilities. They wanted to go back to like, you know, what the theory says. Um, or I think some of their methods was just not, or they had become NGOs. You know, or they or they had become sort of wedded to the ANC, so they they it didn't come up. There are other movements I think that are interesting. For example, there's a in Tanzania, uh, sorry, in 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 in, in Uganda, um, and again, these depends on like the nature of the regime. So a very right, you know, a, a regime that is a, a, a 
a proxy or a junior partner of the U.S.'s war on terror run by this guy called um, uh, Yoweri Museveni, who's been in power since the 80s. He started out like as an African Marxist with a very radical program, but he's still in power. You know, I think it's like 30 odd years later, state corruption, patronage networks, you know, like you can see the same thing with Trump, but like there it's way more pronounced and it's very difficult for people to break the strangle of police brutality, authoritarianism, one party state. And so there's like at the level of like sort of popular culture, there was this musician, his name is Bobby Wine, like a reggae musician. And it's very, it's not clear yet where his program might go. Making music videos, he educates people with like a sort of presenting a range of ideas around public goods, around you know people's right to healthcare, people's right to political political rights, and he's trying to run for president in the next election. So this guy Museveni has won every election since what they call democratization in the early nineties, um, and you know he has a way he controls the electoral commission, the army runs stuff. So it will be interesting to see what happens. With this, with this moment there. I think the one other quick example is what we've seen in, in Nigeria, where there you have sort of like a pact between different elites, like you govern this term, and then we have an election, and then the, the other set of elites govern. And of course, you know, there's like rents and stuff involved. And so there, there's a lot, there's actually in Nigeria, strangely, there's a long history, and a very deep history of left politics. And so there was a candidate who ran so Ware, he ran in this last election, about 40 years old. But unfortunately, you know, he, he didn't go far, partly because they arrested him. And they locked him up, I think, right after, like around the election and right after. And every time that he's about to get out of prison, they lock him up again. But so, you know, so it's kind of depressing. I think the, 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 the moment is very depressing. Um, but and this is my quick last point on this. When Occupy first emerged, right? Occupy happened here in New York. I was around for that. And then it was like quiet. Then later on, Bernie Sanders came, you know, Jacobin came, whatever, like at the level of popular culture, organized PSA is having a comeback. So it's like you, there's something about the kids who were involved in Fees Must Fall. At some point, they're going to move into the state that, you know, they're going to become civil servants. They're going to move in the NGOs. They're going to work for the social movement. So we don't know where that's, you know, that for me, that's the hope that I'm having that a couple of years are going to pass. They're out of school. They're settling into the out of university, I mean, college, and they settle into the professions. They settle into the movements. And then hopefully something interesting can come out of that. I just want to say real quick, uh, uh, shouts to Milton Alamadi uh, from uh, Black Star News, who I've done a lot of work with and who is extremely committed on Uganda. Mm-hmm. So I just want to recognize him in this conversation because we discussed Uganda. So in a, in a talk that you gave uh, for the nation, there was an interesting point brought up about how sports was utilized in order to uh, accomplish uh, a post-apartheid uh, South Africa. And I thought that was so fascinating. I, I do want you to talk about that a little bit, um, but do so after we watch this lovely video featuring uh, Ben Shapiro. He's a well-known conservative here in America who's upset that his safe space of sports has been infiltrated with politics. Let's take a quick look at that. Now, Clay, I, it does make me wonder whether inevitably we're going to end up with basically two sports leagues, whether whether at some point people are just going to want a sports league that, that does not allow this sort of stuff to impede the play or, or get on the field. And people are just going to view that because I got to say, like, I've been fairly tolerant of this stuff. 
in terms of in terms of watching sports my entire life. There are only a couple of times where I've really turned off the TV. One was, you know, when it came to Sports Illustrated, I was a lifelong subscriber to Sports Illustrated. My parents gave it to me for my bar mitzvah. I had Sports Illustrated subscription for like another 10, 12 years. I used to keep the old issues in a box. I mean, that's how much I enjoyed it. And then when they decided, you know what, it's important for us to feature Caitlyn Jenner on the cover when Bruce Jenner had not been an actual athlete for three decades. And all of a sudden I'm reading yep. about transgenderism in Sports Illustrated, I was like, okay, I'm done. I can't do this anymore because this has nothing to do with sports. And I, I subscribe to a sports magazine. I'm not doing this anymore. And the other is during the Kaepernick protest when it became incumbent on people to somehow approve of the hands up, don't shoot symbology that was being put out by particular players. I, I'm tempted to do the same with the NBA now that now that you have LeBron James who was willing to basically virtue signal on behalf of the, Chinese, the, the communist Chinese government, but rip Drew Brees. It's getting to the point where I don't want to watch sports. My, my place of of comfort has been removed from me and it may not be it may not be restored until there are actual sports leagues that that remove politics from the sports so i couldn't help but think about that video uh after hearing what you uh shared with the audience in that talk with the nation because uh there were boycotts uh toward south african rugby teams in order to make a point about how uh, apartheid needed to end. I thought that was a, a really powerful point. Can you talk about that a little bit and how uh, po- both pop culture, sports, you know, forms of entertainment have been used uh, as a way to push forward with a political movement and message? I mean, he sounds like a classic sort of like defend, like white South African <laughs> saying that, you know, sports, they, they used to actually say that sports and politics doesn't mix. That was sort of their... So that they could, you know, keep playing rugby, uh, keep playing cricket, tests, uh, you know, while literally there's the whole. It's like an occupying state, right? Like then with an occupying army, but yeah, they playing cricket and tennis and rugby and so on. So he 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 just it it's just it's very familiar. Um, before I just want to talk about uh, about the South African experience. The one thing that I found fascinating, and I do I do unfortunately consume a lot of like the sports media. I actually want to say that the U.S discussions around sports, uh, like sports programming, you know, outside of the actual stuff that's happening in the field of play, it's way more, it's way more fun to watch, like watching. So an example would be one of my favorite sort of guilty pleasures is a show here on Fox sports, this guy called Shannon Sharp and skip. I mean, it's, it's not, you know, I don't expect rocket science from it, but what I found fascinating in the last couple of weeks is like, there was one moment when Shannon Sharp, I think played he played NFL football. Uh, NFL football. I think he's a Hall of Famer. And at one moment he's like, he's like, "Well, Skip, um, uh, uh, as the great Oscar Romero said in El Salvador." And I was like, "What? There's a this is what I think is interesting about sport, like how sport here, you know, sport is keeping. So there's the stuff in the street, and in, and you know, everybody else is talking about elections and electionism and so on." Um, you know, except for the independent media, of course, but in the mainstream. But what I find interesting about the mainstream here is like how then sports media uh, kind of keeps the conversation going because there's stuff about statues or what a coach said. And so you, the the, the same guy, Shannon Sharp, said something the other day where he said about the NASCAR ban on on um, uh, uh, the flags, right, at, at, at NASCAR events. And he said something like, well, I mean, in Germany, you, you need special permission to use a, a Nazi flag the flag is banned. Why are they doing it here? Why would they use a flag of a of something tried to defend a a horrible regime and act like it was normal? So, like you see that kind of debate in, in sports radio that I don't think you often that sort of emphatic 
description of like what is wrong and, and in a very common sense way that you don't, I think, often see in um, in the mainstream. But just quickly on the, I think the lessons and the 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 the, the piece you referred to is about the um, the attempt to like you know isolate Israel, right? So the key thing about the South African situation was sports mattered for white South African identity because white South African identity tied its success to... So the, the, the reason for existing of that regime and the, 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 that regime need like a kind of soft power and the soft power was it was very good at rugby and it was very good at cricket. I mean, it was also some... In some places, it was also very good in certain individual sports. So like golf, uh, the golfer Gary Player, right? It was like one of the greatest golfers of all time. And then there's, you know, in tennis, they had some decent tennis players. I think one of them is like still a commentator um, on TV, this guy called Cliff Drysdale. So, you know, they had decent tennis players in certain individual sports and some some athletes. So it mattered to them that they do successfully in sport. And secondly, that they were deemed to be a member of the community, the community of nations. And so it meant they... The, 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 the fact of participation counted for the legitimacy of South Africa. And so what happened at the end of the 1960s, it actually started in the early 60s with Dennis Brutus, um, who had gone to prison with uh, Nelson Mandela. Um, he had been arrested, then he was in jail, and then I think he was released and he was going to be rearrested and he fled the country. And he started this thing called the South African Non-Racial Olympic Committee. And then they worked very hard actually culminating in 1968, I think he met with with, with um, the African-American athletes who did the Black Power salute um, at the games in Mexico. And they finally, eventually, they managed to convince FIFA to ban South African soccer, you know, the tennis, et cetera. They, would, they went on to the U.S. Open in Nashville. But just back to the, the point about, about rugby and cricket. So what happened is like from like, and Wimbledon also, from the end of the 1960s, the beginning of the 1970s, many of these people said, okay, you can you can do what Dennis is doing by going to the sports associations and appealing that South Africa should be banned, but you can also disrupt the games. Now, if you couldn't do it in South Africa, you have to disrupt South Africans when they play outside because, you know, there's, there's they, that's, what, that's where they thought they were legitimate, that people accept them. So they would disrupt Wimbledon. They would disrupt cricket matches when South African teams would play in Australia and Britain. And so eventually it got to a point by the, by the late, I would say the early 1980s, the only way that South Africa could get teams to come to South Africa, well, first they were not going overseas anymore. And the only way they could do it was for teams to come to South Africa. And so they would pay uh, players. They ended up playing, sadly, also players from the West Indies, um, but Australia, England to come and play games against them. These teams are usually called rebels. But the point is by, by at least the early to the mid-1980s, it was very clear that they had lost this battle because of the, you know, because of sports sanctions, and that it did a lot for their morale of wanting to be part of the world. And again, it's very, it's not this, it's it's sort of very selfish. Like we, you know, apartheid should end so that we could play tennis again, so that we could play rugby again. And I think in that way, what it so it it it, it undermined the morale of white South Africa for something that seemed very trivial but very powerful. And I think it's the same year in this country where you could see this around Kaepernick, right? Where uh, when Kaepernick first kneeled, I think it was a 2016, he was a pariah of some sort, mostly in, in sort of mainstream um, white media. Right now they're falling over their feet 
to like praise him. And some of them invent mysteries for themselves, including some black commentators like this guy, Stephen A. Smith. They suddenly all like, oh, I love Kaepernick, et cetera. So that's, that's, that's why I think um, sports is interesting to watch. Let me make one other quick point, which I don't want a misrepresentation to happen. It's not, it's true that Americans don't often look to the rest of the world and it's very insular. And as I said, you know, there are exceptions. There's always been an internationalist movement here. But it would be remiss for me not to mention the 1980s and the, the, uh, the movement to divest from South Africa on campuses, the, the attempt to get to push through Congress by particularly black Congress people, the original sort of like where the, you know, some elements of the, of the, the, the black, um, Congressional Black Caucus comes from, Ron Dellums, like people like that who were very crucial in that movement. Um, you know, so it, it the, 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 as I said, the, the, the campus movements to make that stuff happen, the churches, the just like pushing for, pushing the American debate on reform, which was called at that time on the Reagan constructive engagement and pushing for much more radical reforms. And, and my last point on that is, that was also a period that that, that coincided particularly in, in black and, and radical sort of left politics in the U.S., which is very much like third world politics, solidarity politics. So that stuff might come back, you know, when people draw on the lessons of stuff that they did before, that they didn't do well. Um, I think some of that might come back. So I don't want to, like, create the impression that um, because of the exceptionalism of the United States and of the way that that exceptionalism becomes kind of broadly dispersed in how people in the U.S. think about who they are and what's possible. Um, it's not entirely true. There have been moments here where Americans have made those connections with the rest of the world um, and, you know, in trying to imagine a different kind of world. Absolutely. Well, I, one of the ways that people can concretely engage in those subjects and, and reading and thinking about them is by reading Africa as a Country, which I read regularly, and also by subscribing to the YouTube channel, Africa as a Country. I will say I'm going to plug this Tuesday. I'm having William Shockey on the Michael Brooks show, and we're going to get into really in-depth conversation on South African policing and teasing out some of those global dimensions. And I'm sorry, one more plug because he was on a couple of weeks ago, and of course he's one of my my regular co-conspirators. Uh, check out Wozni Lambre's uh, Hoops Adjacent podcast with David Aldrich, and that's actually a great example of what Sean is talking about. I, I really think it's true that some of the sports coverage in the United States and sports culture conversations are just light years ahead of certainly corporate mainstream media. Um, and uh, I always enjoyed watching Cliff Drysdale as a commentator growing up watching tennis, I have to admit. But uh, at any rate, Sean Jacobs, really appreciate your time, man. Everybody uh, check out Africa's a Country website. Subscribe to the YouTube channel. It's really great. Thank you very much for having me. Take care. Okay, thank you. All right, should we, are we going to take a brief break or are we going to just keep going? Let's keep going. Let's keep going. All right. What do we got for salt, Anna? Oh, I love this story. Um, so... Look, you got to take the uh, light, fun moments where you can get them. And let me just preface this story by saying this is what democracy looks like. So I appreciate uh, what this woman did, even though I disagree with her wholeheartedly. So there's a woman named uh, Deborah Baber. She lives in Simi Valley, California. I only say that because she's uh, very vocal about it. (laughs) And she is absolutely and utterly disgusted by uh, the mandatory nature of mask wearing in California right now. 
Recently, the Ventura County Board of Supervisors had a meeting to vote on whether or not they should implement mandatory mask wearing in public in response to this ongoing pandemic. As some of you might already know, there are almost two dozen states that have seen a spike in the number of new coronavirus cases. And one of the best ways to, you know, at least slow the spread is to wear masks when you're out in public. Well, it's turned into a nonsensical political issue. It shouldn't be, it shouldn't be polarized. But with someone like Donald Trump in office, who literally just told the Wall Street Journal that he thinks people are wearing masks in public to embarrass him and to make him look bad, it's become a political issue, right? Like, it's just ridiculous. Asshole. Guys, he literally said that to the Wall Street Journal. I'm sorry. You got to get rid of Donald Trump. I'm sorry. There isn't. Let me just take 30 seconds on this. I disagreed. Everybody knows my position in 2016. But the context, both in terms of the forward trajectory of the possibility in the Democratic Party with Bernie Sanders and like Zizek said, like there. There was a different constellation around and I did I still totally disagreed with it, but there was a different context around just the idea of having somebody that was like a smack in the face to establishment politics, period, even as it was like a regression and totally disgusting, which is, again, why I opposed, you know, I did not want him to be president. I wanted to vote. I did vote strategically in 2016. But like. There, there just isn't. There's no strategic argument left. There's nothing. Like, just get rid of the guy. And and all the fun parts, he can keep tweeting. Totally. Yeah, yeah. And believe me, he will. He will keep tweeting. We will have That's DACA and potentially a slower rate increase of the national security state for the possibility of future uh, organizing. And he will tweet all fucking day, which he's great at. Anyways, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. And now I have to add one more thing to that, because uh, recently there was a small business meeting in Nebraska with some Republican governors. And as this small business owner was talking about the challenges of opening back up uh, in the middle of this pandemic, Donald Trump, like he grabs his phone. She's speaking. He grabs his phone, looks around like, you know, like a mischievous high school student and just like starts tweeting and he starts tweeting about decoupling from China while this woman is talking about something that by the way he's advocating oh, for he's so the one awesome. who wants like businesses to... it's just do you remember he the solution he's addicted do you remember the solution that we came up with i don't i think the solution was maybe it was lex idea but the perfect scenario like if we were in a good world bernie sanders is president and trump is press secretary in a sanders administration <laughs> that is like the best of all worlds. Just like there were many losers trying to stop Medicare for all, which is really a beautiful bill. And it's going to do tremendous things for people. No, he is he is an effective he's he's in more he's a moron. He speaks like a fourth grader. Like I, I acknowledge all of that. With that said, though, he is an effective communicator. I I mean, like I'm into like he's really like absolutely a psychopath scumbag. And that's really worth noting and highly unusual, honestly, like even in the world of politics, which is filled with tons of cretins, like there is absolutely like 
his lack of even pretending to care about the effects of Corona. Like, yeah, that's distinct. I'll keep saying it. Like read that Edward Luce piece in the financial times. I don't know that he's actually, I don't really totally bought, like, I wouldn't say he's like smart, but I don't think he's, I think he's very intuitive. I think he's very savvy. I think he's very like, I think that ability, like, like that Bolton said that he called, and I believe he stole this from me. I think I said this first, but the fact that he called, you know, like Beto, like Juan Guaido, the Beto of Venezuela, like, he knows how to read things. He's and he all and of course he just translates it into being like trash because like that's who he is. Mm-hmm. He's just like a big messy bitch, but he's insightful. He's savvy. That's fair, and he's he's he understands marketing. Like yeah. he's got the intuitive nature when it comes to marketing and communication. So I'll give him that. So uh, now that we've adjudicated like why this mask situation has become so politicized, uh, Deborah Baber, who's a huge Trump supporter, goes to this, um, you know, board of supervisors meeting to protest the mandatory mask wearing. And she just it, it produces one of the best videos I've ever seen in my career. It's not even hyperbole. I broke it up into lots of different parts so we can really stop and, and discuss. Let's go to the first one. I am a healthy American. I used to be free. I am not a terrorist. I am not Antifa. I am not a sex slave that wears masks. I am not into sadomasochism and bondage. I am not a burglar. I am not a pandering politician like we see here. And here, and here, and here. No, I, I'm obsessed with her. I couldn't, I like, I don't agree with anything she's saying, but she's amazing. She's a, not I like that energy? am not a sadomasochist, which of course makes me think she's totally into sadomasochism, which by the way, there's nothing wrong with that. Whatever gets your rocks off. But it's just like, what? Like, what? Why did that have to come up out of nowhere? She's not wearing a mask, Anna. Listen to her. Jesus Christ. I love this woman. This is democracy, though, right? We need so much more of this kind of energy. Like, the left and liberals are filled with like, well, actually, why did you say that? And, oh, my God, that's not okay. This one. Boom. I am not Antifa. Not a sadomasochist. Yeah, boom, check it, it's on the chart. Props and like pointing to pictures of like, people don't know what terrorists look like. So I'm going to go ahead and show them like, what? (laughs) It's just insane. Terrible content, amazing (laughs) delivery. Absolutely. Let's see a little more of that amazing delivery. I am a proud Trump Republican, (laughs) Trump Republican, (laughs) yearning to be free again. Who are you, victim or victor? If you are offended by anything I have said, by the masses of people, then I am offended by the masses of people who do not question your wholesale slaughter of our constitutional and inalienable rights. Shame on all of you. Let liberty ring. (laughs) Yes. We know you're a Trump supporter. Like we could tell from the hat and the like, I love how the hat and the shirt was not enough. I also need to have like, 
you know, a, a poster showing my absolute admiration for Donald Trump to really get that point across. <laughs> That's oh my God. By the way, now I know I've been, cause I've been so thrown off at some of the stuff that Kale has been saying to us in show prep. And now I know where he cribbed it from. <laughs> Kale goes, if you are offended, I am the one that am offended. I'm totally kidding. Um, but, I love it. By the way, Wholesale slaughter. When she said wholesale slaughter, I'm like, oh, are, are we going to talk about like Yemeni children? Like wholesale? No, no, of our constitutional rights, which by the way, we should be concerned about what's happening to our constitutional rights. But she's maybe focusing on the wrong thing, right? Like never... she's mixing up a. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, you're right. I just, I'm thinking of like all of those classic like libertarian calls in the majority report where like, you know, you'd start with like, yeah. There's that, like, our civil liberties are trampled systemically and fundamentally. And, of course, they don't consider this. But if you should, like, the private surveillance economy, which is even worse and more dangerous and the hybrid, all of this stuff. And then, so it's like, okay, yeah, totally. So what did you have in mind? I can't buy energy and efficient light bulbs anymore. <laughs> Done. It's just States, it's just states so can't enslave incredible. people anymore rest my case (laughs) (laughs) it's it's so true oh my god so okay let's go to this next one god bless america land that i love stand beside her and guide her through the night with the light from above from the oceans to the prairies to the mountains white with foam god bless america my home sweet home god bless america my home sweet home let liberty Thank you for your comments. Ah. And it's Baber. Deborah Baber. Thank you very much. You should know better. The next item is a Zoom. <laughs> you should know better. Okay. Like the calmness of that board member is incredible. All right. Next we have a Zoom. Um, I think we're done listening about uh, the foamy mountains we have in America. <laughs> Let's uh, move forward. Can we have her on the show? Kale, let's make it happen. I swear to God. Let's make it happen. (laughs) No, I actually wouldn't mind interviewing her, right? Like, as long as, you know, she understands, like, this isn't going to devolve into a weird shouting match. Again, like, I don't think I need to say this, but I'll repeat that I probably disagree with her on everything. But here, here's a lesson that we can learn, uh, something serious that we can take away from what we saw. Look, we need to stop taking ourselves too seriously, right? And have a little bit of a sense of humor about some of what's going on, because there is a point, I think, um, when some people on the right, you know, argue that we want to silence people, not hear their perspectives, not debate uh, perspectives. Now, of course, they're guilty of the same thing. They would censor people on the left any day. 
Um, but I'm not offended by that show that she gave. I'm actually inspired by it, and I want to see more of it from everyone, from anyone who has uh, varying political ideologies, opinions, thoughts. That's what democracy is supposed to be, right? So I'm not intimidated by or afraid of that type of perspective. In fact, I want to debate it and I feel confident in my beliefs and my values and my ideology. And I just think that we can all, you know, maybe take something from that to open up dialogue and discussions that I think that the left, just as much as the right, has been guilty of trying to um, end or silence, whatever, censor. Yeah, I I Stop trying to censor stuff. Yeah, go ahead. I agree. I mean, I also like... Look, it look, obviously it's ridiculous and she's talking a whole bunch of nonsense and bullshit, but there is like this element of like just really save and this just applies completely across the board. Just like save your contempt for like actual people who like have actual power, like a political office. Mm-hmm. Like not like, you know, I mean, you know, not Twitter whatever or media whatever, like, you know, like let alone, and least of all, like a regular citizen, you know, who, yes, she's the lady's a crackpot, but, but, you know, go out there, go for it. The, 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 the subtext of like discouraging that participation, I think we should totally shy away from. I completely agree with you. Yeah. And, uh, and I would like a bell for this show. <laughs> so good. It's so good. I, I I envision her practicing that whole spiel in front of a mirror. You know, like she's like, okay, but you know what? It, I'm not really going to bring it home unless I sing. But and by the way, she's got some good chords on yeah, her. She can sing. Um, and I got to put out pull out that bell. Let liberty ring. So I wish I advocated for freeing Lula like that. I'd be yeah. into it. And yes, Hopefully. I do support freeing Lula. You can see what my Lula t-shirt and in fact, I talked about it on every fucking episode of my show. <laughs> that was awesome. Kale, do we have a oh, super man. chat question or two before we wrap up? Yeah, we do. So um, we got one from uh, Kowalski from Nebraska. Kowalski from Nebraska. What's up, brother? Yeah, so he writes... Got government grant and business loan for my farm, and the USDA didn't know that the Treasury did this. I guess that's some contextual information. The question is, how do people rationalize the desire for small government, yet they want federal programs like ethanol mandate and federal crop insurance? So I guess it's the kind of the old joke of, uh, you know, people saying, get the government off my get the government's hands off my Medicare. Um, So, yeah, I guess the question about ideology how do people rationalize maybe a conservative or a small government political project or program or voting for those candidates while simultaneously being the benefactors of federal government programs? So that question actually reminded me of something uh, that's related, uh, but it wouldn't answer the specific question. So do you want to answer that? And then I'll tell you what I'm thinking about, Michael. I mean, yeah, sure. I mean, I, I don't have that much depth in terms of, of like any like new ground here, which is that it's, you know, it's, it's a government waste or welfare or whatever, when it's for, you know, them, not me. We know that the Republican party is, you know, the master practitioners of white identity politics and white identitarian politics. And, 
I mean, I think that that's actually, you know, that's one of the sort of splits in the Republican Party. And, the you know, the, the sort of dominant wave has actually been some attempts to really scrap or really cut everything to some extent um, just to distribute more and more and more and more resources to America's oligarchs. But there's always been um, that idea that if you, you know, are in the right, you know, have the right class position, have the right skin color uh, in the Republican context, that you're entitled to stuff. And, you know, you always see this, like, even things like, you know, NPR, public broadcasting, never getting cut as much, because then all of a sudden, like, rural Republicans who are, you know, constantly race baiting and constantly trying to undermine the social safety net. Well, wait a second, all of a sudden their constituents need access to things like that. Uh, maybe, maybe it will potentially, I mean, you know, the postal, postal service is under threat right now. That's a major issue, which we should talk more about. And that, you know, definitely also affects rural people. So I, I think it's just a kind of like inbuilt, basically racialized hypocrisy of how these programs are talked about and dealt with. And, you know, there's, there's, there are very, very, very few people who actually have a libertarian view of things, and mostly they're, you know, trust fund babies. Yeah, and and look, that question really reminded me of uh, a disconnect that I've been um, seeing a lot lately, uh, mostly because my my partner's Cuban, and um, I pay some attention to what conservative Cubans think about this. Uh, you know, the movement. In, in America right now in, in response to police violence. So I believe it was last week, there was a, a small protest, mostly by uh, conservative Cubans in Miami Lakes, Florida. That's a, a suburb near Miami. And um, they're very pro-Trump and they're very pro-police and against uh, Black Lives Matter. And I bring it up because uh, conservative Cubans tend to be refugees uh, or they see themselves as refugees in response to the revolution in Cuba. And one thing that they bring up over and over again is, oh, my God, the Castros were so awful. There was no freedom of speech. There's no freedom of press. You can't speak out against them. Um, you'll be persecuted. Right. And I just think it's so fascinating how they're totally in favor of the type of policing that's taking place right now of state-sponsored murder, essentially, where people are running away from the cops and they're getting shot and killed in the back as they're running away. And by the way, these, uh, you know, Cuban protesters that I'm speaking of are very much in favor of the insane violence by the cops against the protesters who are exercising their freedom of speech uh, exercising their First Amendment rights and protections. Anyway, these types of disconnects exist all over the place, and they're frustrating, and I, I think they're really hard to make sense of because they don't make sense. And that's why we need to really, we need to celebrate these types of exchanges and debates that I think are are being censored, are being shied away from, um, you know, maybe I'm going to get in trouble mentioning this. I don't really care. But Adolph Reed, for instance, should have been able to give his talk to the DSA and there should have been a discussion about it. There should have been a debate about it. People should have been comfortable and secure in their beliefs. And you should have your beliefs challenged. You absolutely should. 
because that's how you grow. That's how you learn. Everyone is going through or should be going through a political journey. And I think the less we celebrate that type of political journey, the more we're going to have instances like this where we see people advocating for things that they're supposed to be against, that they're vehemently against. Adolf Reed should be welcomed, you know, to speak everywhere. I mean, I, you know, the idea of not, I mean, first of all, I mean, I will just say like, the endless lies and demonization and distortions of Adolf Reed are actually just kind of like mind-blowingly disgusting and dishonest in and of themselves and relentless just on like a basic level of like pure dishonesty. But also, you know, the idea of like turning away from a really singularly important, not only intellectual, but actually also labor organizers, you know, unfathomable and ridiculous. Um, I, it also though reminds me of uh, the, uh, in, um, the Sopranos, uh, there's this great scene where they're talking about, you know, how they came to the country, uh, you know, how their families came to the country. Now, again, literally members of a mafia family, like in the Bush era, right? Still out, you know. And and one of them uh, says, like, yeah, actually, my old man, like, he actually came through Canada. He never even got his papers. And his old man was like a hitman for the their, their you know, their crew, their family in New Jersey. And, uh, and they're just kind of like ruminating on it. Like, huh, isn't that something else? Like, that's hilarious. And then out of nowhere, one of them's like, I'll tell you what, they got to build that wall today, though. Like, <laughs> got to seal that border up. And it was just, I mean, it was just, I mean, that's the reason that's probably the best show ever. I mean, it's just like the perfect distillation of the Republican and, you know, definitely often like Democratic, you know, just sort of like white middle class mindset about this stuff. Yeah. Um, I was worried for a second because it looked like we only had a couple joke questions coming in and we'll still get to those, but we just got a really good question. No promise we get to all questions. We only do like one, two, maybe three. So, uh, well, Michael said it on me. (laughs) Always what I stipulate. We don't promise we get to all super chat. Mm. Yeah. Um, well, this one is definitely worth addressing. This is, um, question asks, how can we move the current Black Lives Matter movement to become multiracial, class-based? Seems identitarians and HR politics have lots of power in the current movement. Um, so I think, you know, Sean earlier in the interview, which I thought was a fantastic interview, he he took a different view on this. That I, I think he, he laid out that he thinks that the new iteration of Black Lives Matter is something different than what we saw four, five, six years ago, which I think is undeniable. But I also, I'm more of a, a pessimist on this in that I think, you know, I think it's revisionist to say that uh, it's being co-opted. I think the fact that it's, it is so permeable to begin with is part of the problem, but I would like to hear your thoughts. I mean, I know we've been talking about this for weeks on weeks, but um, you know, any further thoughts on kind of maybe if there's any strategic interventions or any tactical interventions of how do we move the protests into a more class-based focus. Well, I just have three, I mean, three quick thoughts. So like one is that, yes, like ultimately I'll say again and again and again, like, right. Like I think ultimately a mass based union movement is like the thing that can have a countervailing force structurally to power. I believe that I see that strategically. I also think though, that it's like, you can't, Anybody can do critique and analysis and needs to like there. I'm it's, it's actually another really important distinction to make. You can't just like, just because something's happening doesn't mean you can't like critically assess it. And, you know, I, again, I 
Cedric Johnson, who I've interviewed and has has written on this, is is someone who's thinking about this very uh, critically and creatively. On and then, of course, on the other hand, like I think it's very important to be watching and reading what Angela Davis is saying about this right now. But you can't like it is what it is. You can't go in and reverse engineer like this is what it is. This is what's happening, right? Like it isn't you, it, it be, there becomes like this dangerous part where I think like, again, I think the analysis is mostly correct, but then it's like, okay, so we're going to wait till some like point in the future when conditions fall into place. And that's just not how the real world works. That's actually anti-materialist in a way. So I actually, you know, so again, there are movements and people that have at enormous personal risk. I mean, and also go back to Ferguson. There are people in Ferguson who died, frankly, under enormously uh, questionable circumstances, let's say. We know the Department of Homeland Security is monitoring Black Lives Matter. Uh, this is very serious. And so we need to, to start from that basic standpoint of recognition of where the action is. Now, I, I actually think I'm more optimistic like Sean is because I think the broader scope is the new iteration. And I think we had already seen very clearly that one on a side that, by the way, is is actually part of a broader politics, which is like, yes, these are there are core civil rights and equity questions. And this uh, movement addresses that. And that's great. I mean, that may not be structural in the sense. And, and I think this is actually another difference that Sean points out that like, yes, there were these uprisings in 2013, 14, 15 that led to these reforms that have been shown to be insufficient. So now there's a much bigger, more systemic set of demands, which necessarily do start to implicate class structure, capitalism and and these other kind of interlinked uh, variables. And then, you know, so I, I have that optimism. Now, three, I think that this is falling in an environment where Without Bernie, there is just this new resurgence of, and it was frankly already happening. And I would not, like the the protests and demonstrations are an enormously positive point, just even in terms of like real physical meeting of like George Floyd and Breonna Taylor were murdered, right? But this kind of other part of like new waves of social media toxicity, looking for new reasons to attack people, new kind of like new regimens of like control and moralism and, and utter, you know, toxicity in the HR politics. Like we have, you know, the, the white fragility ladies on Jimmy Fallon. I mean, look, I obviously, I think all of that stuff is, is incredibly toxic, usually bullshit. And I think just, I'll shut up in a second, but one we need to increasingly just full stop, not indulge any of that stuff in any way, shape or form. I'm, you know, I'm not it, it, the the politics of, of gossiping, censoring, controlling, monitoring just needs to be completely rejected across the board, full stop, none of it. Uh, and then in addition to that, and I think this is where I, you know, I align a lot with Jacobs, like, you know, the answer, like, there is a very substantive and global answer to like, don't read like white fragility by this corporate consultant, read Angela Davis, read Walter Rodney, read Adolph Reed, read Cornell West, read Cedric Johnson, read, you know, really ground yourself in a serious global 
black and in addition, you know, truly global intellectual tradition. That's how you can understand the broader roots of these things. And I think, you know, some of that is definitely happening. So one, you can't control what's in motion. Two, there are new iterations which are going in this direction. And and you can read Jacob's talks about the difference between the Soweto in 76 and then UDF in the 80s. It's a really interesting comparison. And then three, we have our marching orders for how to respond to this like renewal of the HR busybody, disgusting culture war stuff online, which is to just completely reject it, not indulgent in any way, shape or form, build a sophisticated, compassionate, strategic culture. Yeah, I, I love that answer. And it's super comprehensive. So I only have one small thing to add to it just to buttress your point, your last point. Um, you know, there was a super chat that we received on uh, TYT asking, you know, why it was that TYT as a company didn't release a statement about uh, the Black Lives Matter uh, movement and police brutality, like all of these other CEOs for massive corporations did. And, and so I, you know, it's funny because that didn't even cross my mind, mostly because I see those statements as incredibly hollow and nothing more than, uh, the performative politics that I completely disagree with and don't want to engage in. I think that releasing a statement means nothing. I think that actually being part of a movement, supporting it, educating people about it, um, going out there on the streets and being part of it, that's, that speaks volumes compared to the superficial um, action of releasing a corporate statement about where your company stands on the movement. So um, it, it, that's just an example of what I think you're talking about, Michael, which is the, the weird policing that I see happening on social media right now uh, in regard to, oh, what did your, what are you tweeting about on this day? And is it sufficient enough to send a message about this important movement? Look, Twitter and social media can be used as a tool to mobilize people, but tweeting is not political activism and releasing statements also is not political activism. And we need to be aware of that. Yeah, that's right. Um, so let's just do... This is the the lightning round, um, just to satisfy our lovely viewers in the chat. So the first one is from Billy Big Bricks, and he asks, thoughts on TX, the hot Terminator from T3? I don't know that thing, so I don't have any thoughts, but sounds good. Thanks, Billy. (laughs) Um, And then the next one, which Michael already actually covered a bit of this earlier in the show, from Champagne Communista, they ask, any music recommendations for this weekend, particularly for Margarita Night? Also, thank you for everything you'll do and individually and on the show together. So, any music thank recs? You. Thank you. Um, you. Go ahead. You go first. Um, I heard a song recently on my, oops, sorry, Spotify playlist, but it's brand new, like to my world. So I got to look up the name. Um, but you mentioned, uh, chronics, Chronics, right? Naughty dread cover. I'd listen to that. Um, I'm listening to that like on repeat and I'll recommend again, Kofi. She's awesome. And her live NPR tiny desk, uh, performance is great. And her cover of, uh, burn a boy. Uh, you can look all these up certainly on YouTube, probably also on Spotify. Definitely. Those are my picks. Enjoy. 
So look, I, I don't know if people are going to be into my music choices, uh, but I made two of my playlists public on Spotify, which you can follow and get a sense of what I like. Um, but Glass Animals um, is a new... Are you familiar, Michael, with Glass Animals by no, any chance? No, what is it? Tell me. It's more like in the realm of like dance music and stuff. I, I don't know. I, I had my raver days and they've never left me, even though I don't go to raves anymore, obviously. Um, but I just really enjoy dance music and electronic music. So um, you'll get a lot of that if you follow my playlists on Spotify. <laughs> Casparian. Casparian swag. That's that, that's that Armenian. <laughs> it really is. It really is. But you know what? I'm not ashamed of it. You shouldn't be. Absolutely. Yeah. Kale, we got anything else? No, I think that's it. That's That's it. Everybody stay safe, stay strong. We will see you next Saturday. Take care. See you guys. Bye, everyone.